CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. And so we come to the end of yet another week on Political Rewind. It is Friday, uh, April 23rd, and we're very happy to welcome to our final show of the week uh, the Speaker of the Georgia House, Representative David Ralston of Blue Ridge, uh, who has served as the 73rd Speaker of the Georgia House of Representatives, has been in that job for more than a decade now. And um, under his leadership, Speaker Ralston has won praise from many for uh, his balanced approach to any number of controversial bills that some people felt were extreme in nature. He has, of course, also been criticized for supporting measures that uh, some have found to be uh, troubling. Certainly, the election law this year has generated enormous controversy, Um, but... um, Today on the show, we're going to give him a chance to talk about the election law, um, but also look at other important measures that have come through the legislature in this 2021 session. Uh, Let let me start by saying, uh, Mr. Speaker, we are always delighted when you accept our invitations to do Political Rewind, and thank you very much for being here today. Well, thank you, Bill. It's always good to be with you, and I'm very happy to be with uh, Patricia Murphy this morning too. Yeah, did you want to? You can just go ahead and introduce her. I don't have you could you could take <laughs> over for a second. <laughs> Patricia Murphy is with us. She, of course, is the. Uh, I, I don't want to put the her newest. job in jeopardy. <laughs> <laughs> Patricia Murphy, the newest member of the political of the uh, political reporting team at the AJC, but also. Uh, the columnist uh, whose column appears on Wednesdays and Sundays, the political insider. Patricia also oversees the political blog at AJC.com, including the Jolt, which is a terrific early morning summary of uh, some of the most interesting news coming out of politics. Uh, Patricia, I said to the speaker before the show went on the air that one of the things that made me... we're very glad the speaker's been on the show uh, on any number of occasions, but it was your column with him, the interview you did with him at the end of the session that really sparked our interest in talking to him uh, today. So actually, some of the things he said we'll get into during this conversation, but thank you for being here, Patricia. Well, thank you so much for having me, and it's great to be with Speaker Ralston. Um, Listeners may not know this about him. Um, Speaker Ralston is extremely accessible to the press when we're down at the Capitol. Um, He does lots of press conferences. He's always been very um, open to my requests for interviews. And he's one of the um, one of the few people in politics I've met who really answers all the questions you ask him, <laughs> which is really um, makes it uh, makes it possible to um, do interviews that you're able to come away with um, and have a better understanding of, of what's going on than when you started. You know, Patricia, I think that's an important point. And, and Mr. Speaker, um, th- those of us who've covered politicians for a long, long time, and um, I have certainly done that. Patricia's much younger than I am, but she's been in the political reporting business for a long time as well. We know that there are politicians who, when they're reported on critically, uh, refuse to have anything to do with us. They are very short-tempered, they're very thin-skinned, and they don't understand that it's part of our responsibility to ask tough questions and sometimes express criticism in the way we write, you uh, are always willing to understand that that's part of our job. You don't always like it, but you I've never seen you once turn your back on a reporter who's done a tough story on you, and, and frankly, I'm very grateful to you for that. Well, you know, I, I think you have to uh, have a mutual understanding between the public official and the um, uh, uh, and the media uh, as to the important role that they both play. Uh, um, you know, I respect the uh, the media's uh, uh, responsibility to inform the public about uh, what it is that we're doing. 
Um, and as you say, I may not always like the stories, uh, but I, I, I think that uh, a good, healthy respect uh, is a good thing, particularly in a very difficult uh, political environment that we find ourselves in today. So, um, um, you know, that's I've tried to do that. I, you, you may remember, Bill, when I first became speaker in January of 2010, um, a previous speaker had kicked the members of the media off the floor of the House, and uh, I let them back on, uh, uh, both for uh, to help them do their jobs as well as I thought it was a good symbolic gesture to say, you know, we're going to be open and we're going to try to have a, uh, a more healthy relationship. So... With all that in mind, you may be facing the biggest test of of how you respond to the critics in terms of the enormous attention that the Georgia election law has gotten, not just in the state, of course, but nationally. And we've talked about this bill frequently on the show. We've had Republicans and Democrats argue both sides of it. We've done our own, we think, pretty fair-minded analysis of the the measures in the bill that seem to be fine and others that maybe are problematic. So I'm not suggesting we relitigate all of that today, but I do want to start with a, a larger point. Um, you uh, actually uh, uh, said in an interview, uh, with the interview with Patricia actually, that you understand that as soon as a week after the presidential election, you realized that uh, voters were being fed some misinformation about what had happened in the election, the election, presumably talking about the Trump argument that the election was a fraud here in Georgia and in other states that he lost. Um, the, the governor uh, has talked about the election law. This is almost an exact quote. He said, the law will make it easier to vote, harder to cheat. So here's my starting question for you. Um, Perhaps one of the reasons that that people are finding it so difficult to look at this law as clearly as possible is the underlying uh, reasons for the uh, the bill coming forward in the first place seems to be built on misinformation. There wasn't a lot of cheating in the Georgia election in uh, 2020 that we know of. Um, President Trump, uh, when he was president, didn't win re-election and didn't get denied that uh, election because of fraud. So when you start from a point of saying, we're going to fix problems that weren't there in the first place, it seems to me that you're already in a difficult position to convince folks that what you're doing is the right thing, Mr. Speaker. I actually started from a different point, uh, uh, Bill. Um, you know, you may remember that uh, uh, I was calling out the Secretary of State as far back as March on some issues that I felt like were problematic, uh, uh, and, uh, and 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 in fact, even before that, when the governor and I had a respectful disagreement about jungle primaries, uh, uh, so the, the the subject of the elections had been. Um, uh, on my mind even before, way before November 4. Uh, then we had the primaries, uh, which I advocated very strongly that we push back from May until a later date uh, to give us more time to prepare for having a primary in the literally in the middle of the pandemic, uh, during the worst days of the pandemic. Uh, and um, so we had the the June primary with all of the problems that came about then, the long lines and, and the seeming disorganization in many counties. Uh, so, uh, so, so I, I, I came from the point of already having concerns prior to November 4 uh, and uh, concerns about you know, here we were with a new voting system. Here we were in the middle of a pandemic with the highest turnout in the history of the state. Uh, and 
uh, I, I thought there were some things that we learned from the process, not only in the primary, but in the general election, which uh, uh, could make our law better. Uh, I wasn't responding uh, uh, so much to uh, the allegations of stolen elections or fraud as I was, what can we do to make it better? You know, one of the things that gets lost in this whole discussion is is that it is very, very common for us as a General Assembly to come in after every election and, and, and make tweaks in our election law. In fact, since 2003, we've made 53 bills having to do with elections law in Georgia have passed the General Assembly. So this was not some outlier of a bill that, that, that just came out of the blue because there was no precedent for it. Uh, and um, um, uh, so that was really what was motivating me. Patricia? And, uh, Mr. Speaker, um, uh, I think our listeners have heard a lot about um, the distribution of water at the polls and a great deal about changes to um, early and absentee voting. Um, uh, what has been less discussed are the changes to uh, Brad Raffensperger's power going forward. I know that was something you were really focused on. Um, in, in essence, this drains a good bit of his power away from him and puts it in the hands of the legislature. Um, I've heard that described by Democrats as a big power grab. Um, but what were y'all thinking? Why did you think that Brad Raffensperger had done something wrong and needed to be, um, needed to have a, a different kind of relationship with elections going forward? Well, you may remember two years ago, uh, State Representative Abrams after, or during and after um, her gubernatorial campaign was very critical of the role of uh, Secretary of State Kemp at that time uh, and felt like that he had too much uh, influence. Uh, so I would have thought she would have been happy with with the changes that we made with regard to the Secretary of State. But, but yeah, where I came, where I came around on the Secretary of State is this. Uh, I am very jealous of guarding the equality and independence of the legislative branch of government. Um, and uh, I felt like that uh, the, the secretary was short-circuiting um, uh, the legislative branch, which is the people's branch, uh, through the settlement he entered into in the Gwinnett County lawsuit, uh, through his unilateral decision without any legislative input uh, and certainly no legislative approval to mail universal absentee uh, ballot applications. Uh, uh, and then when we got into the post-general election um, uh, 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 controversies, you know, the Senate had their uh, hearings, uh, they didn't conduct those hearings the way I would have conducted them, but, you know, I don't tell them what to do, and they don't tell me what to do. Uh, I uh, asked our Governmental Affairs Committee under Chairman Shaw Blackman to convene his group and to run a very businesslike, thoughtful, thorough process and, 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 and to start with the Secretary of State and give him and his uh, office an opportunity to uh, right at the outset to respond to some of the um, concerns that we had heard um, and they chose to ignore our legislative hearings uh, I think that was for me at least the uh, the straw that broke the camel's back and, and I, I realized then that uh, that he and I just had completely different views on uh, the role of the legislature in, in, in being the, uh, the, the body that passes election law changes 
uh, he apparently viewed it in another way, which was that he had the unilateral power to do this. Um, uh, I was I could not accept that, and I thought that the changes we made were a responsible response to that. Uh, Mr. Speaker, when you talk about the uh, way the Senate ran its hearings, part of that, I'm assuming you didn't mention him by name, was they brought in Rudolph Giuliani. They brought in some of the people who were the most uh, outspoken uh, uh, supporters of the conspiracy theory about the election being stolen. And some members of the state Senate have made it clear that, in fact, the way they put together some of the bills in their package uh, were a response to what Rudolph Giuliani who has been proven time and time again to have promoted conspiracies that didn't exist in the election, which is, again, I think one of the reasons that underlying whatever the specific points of this new law are, there's so much skepticism about it. And I'd like to ask you about, uh, you talked about uh, Raffensperger sending out uh, absentee ballot uh, forms, request forms to uh, every voter, uh, registered voter in the state. You, if please, if this quote is not correct, then then I will uh, uh, take your correction. But um, during an interview with a, an organization called Fetch Your News, a North Georgia news site, um, they quote you as saying that sending out ballots across or ballot requests to everyone is quote extremely devastating to Republicans and conservatives in Georgia. Every registered voter is going to get one of these. This will certainly drive up turnout. So if I may, shouldn't the goal, shouldn't your goal, shouldn't the goal of every elected official in the state be to drive up turnout as much as possible um, without regard to uh, which party it, it favors? Isn't, shouldn't the goal be to win those increased number of voters through the, the uh, policies you present rather than hoping to reduce the number of voters who are out there? Yeah, I, I, I probably wasn't very artful in talking about the higher turnout. Uh, uh, and, and, hey, look, I'll be the first to acknowledge that. Uh, uh, my point was that I felt like that it's just not the state's role to, uh, uh, to, 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 to do this. And under the law that we passed, um, the state will be out of the business of doing that. However... Uh, political parties, uh, uh, special interest groups, and others will continue to have that ability if they choose to exercise it. Uh, so, uh, uh, but yeah, they, I mean, the goal is to, to to have a high turnout. And look, you know, we get we 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 we, we get charged sometimes with voter suppression, and you know, I have to sort of laugh about that. To myself, uh, because in 2018 we had the highest non-presidential election year turnout in the history of Georgia. In 2020, we had the highest turnout in a presidential election. So I tell people, you know, if if we're uh, if we're suppressing the vote or trying to suppress the vote, we're not doing a very good job at it. Um, Mr. Speaker, um, uh, I have obviously heard a number of black legislators uh, say they really do think this is voter suppression and they talk about their own family's experiences in the past. But I think an, uh, the incredible reaction from, le from Democrats in the legislature especially, but then also um, by the business community um, I think the blowback was, I don't know if that's something that y'all expected, particularly with the Major League Baseball um, pullout out of Cobb County. Um, there also seems to have been this incredible rift between um, Republicans and um, Coke and Delta, although I know that they were a part of um, being informed on this bill and, and feeding back to y'all their feedback about what they were worried about in the bill. Um, can you tell us what happened specifically with Coke and Delta and where you think the business community is with Georgia right now after all of this um, fallout? Well, if, if I could, Patricia, let me start with the first point you made about uh, uh, some of the African-American legislators talking about voter suppression. 
you know, I just read a few months ago a, a, a great book uh, on the, 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 the sort of the below-the-radar efforts in southwest Georgia back in the 60s to uh, register African-Americans to vote. The book was given to me by an African-American friend uh, for whom I have the greatest respect and a lot of affection. And, 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 and we talk about, we've talked about the book. In fact, it, the, uh, his grandparents' church was burned as part of that entire effort. Um, you know, the book made a, made, made a real impression on me. And so, uh, I'm, I'm sensitive to, uh, charges of, of voter suppression and don't take very kindly to it. Now on the business community, um, yeah, I hear the the discussion about well, the business community is as 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 has pushed back. Well, no, the business community hasn't, uh, as a whole, pushed back. Uh, you've had Coca Cola has been has had their statement. Delta had theirs. They were both at the table. Uh, Delta, in fact, had issued about a week before. Uh, the second statement, uh, uh, a statement that was much more uh, neutral and balanced, and, and um, then for whatever reason they decided to uh, to shift their position. Um, um, and in one of the great uh, one of the great bits of timing uh, in legislative history, they did that on the morning of day 40 of the General Assembly. Um, uh, I, I think I would have waited till the next day had I been them, but you know, they didn't ask my advice, but, uh, but then you have companies like Home Depot and UPS and the Southern company, the Metro chamber. Uh, I, I went to the Metro chamber. I've been to, to their, uh, 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 to two different groups of, uh, their leadership, uh, on two different occasions and tried to answer questions about the bill uh, and explain to them this is not the Senate bill. Uh, you know, Bill referenced the, the bill that, that some of the members of the Senate said was the product of uh, Mayor Giuliani and, and his group coming down here, and I don't know if it was or if it wasn't, but, but our bill is not the Senate bill. Uh, I think we've made some 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 improvements uh, uh, that are much more fair. Yet getting at the uh, the issue I thought we needed to get at. So to say that the business community is 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 um, is, is all up in arms is is just I don't think it's accurate because uh, you've got two sort of high profile uh, companies. Uh, and then you got the other high-profile companies, which have basically said they support the goals of the bill, which are fair, accessible, transparent elections. So, uh, Mr. Smith, by the way, I would add Microsoft to the mix of companies that were very critical. And Microsoft issued probably the most detailed statement going point by point through why they found uh, the, the the law to be uh, uh, r- wrongly put, uh, uh, constructed, but but here's the, the the point I'd like to ask you about in terms of that. And by the way, Microsoft is important because they are pu- putting together a big big project here and are going to be a big big employer in Metro Atlanta. But in any case, um, Mr. Speaker, whether there are a lot of companies or a few. Both here in Georgia, because of the very strong and angry response Governor Kemp had to uh, to the Delta uh, and Coca-Cola announcements, and then in Washington with Mitch McConnell also lashing out at businesses, it does suggest that there is a sudden strain in the relationship between at least some members of the business community and Republicans who you've always been pretty closely allied with one another. And, and I'm wondering about this. It, at Sine Die, you very conspicuously popped open a can of Pepsi Cola. I think a clear shot across the bow at the Coca Cola company. I assume, um, but but I'm wondering in a larger way whether or not 
you believe that businesses have a perfect right to protest against legislation they feel is inappropriate. In Washington, Mitch McConnell had to eat his words after saying business shouldn't get involved in politics. And I think you, in fact, said something to the effect of they shouldn't bite the hand that feeds them. Well, first of all, the first time I'd had a Pepsi in probably 35 or 40 years, Bill, and they're really not. <laughs> I said, no, Mr. Speaker, I said on the air that after that, look, I'm a Chicago boy. I grew up in Pepsi country, but I said on the air that after one sip of that Pepsi, you'll be longing to get a Coca-Cola back up there. <laughs> but go ahead. Um, well, I, uh, uh, I, 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 I'm not going to tell a business uh, what to do or not do in terms of uh, their position on political issues. What I would ask them to do, and what I've asked the business leadership that I've talked with to do, is basically analyze the, 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 the true content of what we did the way you would analyze a business decision. Analyze the facts. Don't analyze the myth. Don't analyze a narrative that you've been handed uh, and, 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 but analyze, uh, exactly, uh, you know, what, uh, the, the bill does, uh, and it should be an objective fact-based decision. And I just believe that if they, if that's done, people will see that this bill, um, is, 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 is not the bill that you hear all the propaganda about. So uh, that's what I would tell businesses to do. Patricia, and, um, we're running out of time with the speaker, but I want to give you one last chance. Oh, great. Thank you. Well, a lot like this interview, um, the election bill has really, I think, taken up a lot of the oxygen about what did happen down at the legislature. Y'all actually had a whole week after the bill passed um, where there was a frenzy of activity, um, including your decision um, not to pass uh, an NRA-backed gun rights expansion bill. What in the legislature stands out to you for what else happened down there um, that was important to you to do and not to do? Well, the thing I'm most proud of, Patricia, was the, uh, uh, the substantial expansion of funding for mental health treatment in Georgia. This is something I've been talking about now for uh, two or three years. I think it's something that we have too long neglected. Uh, and uh, uh, so we added a, a, a substantial amount of resources to expand treatment uh, availability and options all over the state. Uh, and um, uh, I, I have to tell you that that probably was the most uh, satisfying thing that we did uh, during the session for me. We we got the, the Paid Parental Leave Act passed. Uh, this was a measure that we, for state employees, this is a measure we passed in the House in the 2020 session, and uh, the Senate uh, did not take it up, uh, but we were able to get that across the finish line. Uh, and that's going to mean so much to to, to families in Georgia. Um, uh, and I have to mention the citizen's arrest law. You know, uh, I view that as the next step after passage of the hate crimes bill, which uh, I thought was a truly monumental piece of legislation that we passed in uh, 2020. Uh, again, the House had passed it in 2019. A year before the Arbery case in uh, Brunswick, uh, uh, so we came back this year, and, and I couldn't be prouder of the House for leading on that issue. Uh, Chairman Chuck Estration, who chairs our Judiciary Committee, worked tirelessly on that for uh, for almost a year. Uh, did a great job, and. and uh, the governor uh, was supportive this time, and so um, that was—I uh, I think that was an important bill, and, and it passed the House unanimously. Uh, those are the moments that 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 really make you know that 
you know, regardless of the, uh, the of how bad the environment may seem at times, that that there is a path forward. I, before you you go, uh, one last quick thing, if I might, Mr. Speaker. You know, um, you also uh, 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 shot down. Uh, a social hot button issue that other state legislatures have not been able to resist. And and you've done this in the past, back when religious liberty bill was really one of the big, big issues in the Georgia General Assembly. You looked for ways to uh, to take the all the energy out of that push and divert it into, say, a pastor protection plan. I mean, that's something you've always looked at and, and that I think many people on both sides of the aisle have appreciated, your willingness to tamp down hot-button issues. This session, the symbol of that would be the, effort, the efforts around transgender athlete, athletes. Other state legislatures have passed these measures. We won't go into detail on them other than to say they essentially uh, insist that a transgender athlete compete in the, uh, with, in, in the sex that that person was born with. These are the kinds of hot-button issues that don't seem to get the people very far at all, and uh, you were able to knock that down this session as well. Well, sometimes uh, we, we have issues that come along that's, uh, that are almost solutions in search of a problem. Um, and uh, I think we have to be very, very careful uh, with those kind of measures. Uh, uh, I, I have been very uh, 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 careful with those. Um, and while it is true that, uh, and, and, and let me, let me throw in also that, that, you know, as I examined the issue, it appeared to me that we had uh, plenty of adequate safeguards, uh, built into our local school systems, the Georgia high school association, uh, without us getting into a legislative debate which would have been incredibly divisive. Um, um, and, and Lord knows I didn't think we needed any more uh, divisive issues this session. Uh, but oh. you mentioned other you mentioned other states and, and you know I, I, I keep up with what other states do and two of the states that, that passed those were South Dakota and North Dakota. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we can fairly uh, we can all agree those are pretty darn red states. And the governor of both states, uh, Governor Nome, who appears to be a very conservative governor of South Dakota, vetoed the bill. Uh, yesterday, Governor Burgum in North Dakota vetoed their bill. So I think there's a sort of a, 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 a pause going on here. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure that's a bad thing. I, that's a really important point you made. I was not aware of that, and I appreciate you bringing it up. All right, we got to let you go. We've taken more time than we said. Real quick, you're about to get a census report finally. When are you going to start at? When are we going to see a redistricting session, do you imagine, Mr. Speaker? When the frost is on the pumpkin, probably, Bill. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I don't think I don't think we'll. I don't think you uh, need to make uh, plans to be at the Capitol in August, as we have traditionally been. Uh, I, you know, well, I, I say that, but we were, we're we, we've been delayed by the pandemic in terms of getting the census data, and so uh, I'm. I don't know if we can start even during the month of October. I think it's, uh, and I'm just speculating here because we don't have the, all the numbers sure. that we need, but I'm, I'm thinking probably an early November beginning. Wow. Wow, that's really an, it, we're, Patricia, after the break, we're going to talk about what that means to some of the election campaigns in 2022. David Ralston, thank you so very much for spending time with us today. I hope you're getting a chance to rest up a little bit after a hugely uh, interesting and in some ways contentious session. It's always a pleasure to have you with us, Mr. Speaker. Thank you, Bill. I enjoyed being with you and enjoyed being with Patricia. We're going to take our first break of the show, and Patricia and I will be back in a moment. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. 
If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. I'm back with uh, Patricia Murphy, the uh, political reporter and columnist, political insider for the AJC. I said, I think at the top of the show, you read her on Wednesdays and Sundays in the newspaper and see her every day online at AJC.com, where she oversees the jolt and uh, contributes other uh, uh, items to uh, the uh, AJC political page. Uh, Patricia, just to quickly, I- I'd like to return to one thing that I think Ralston said that it's kind of at the heart of uh, a lot of the uh, controversy over the election law. I read to him the quote that he gave to that newspaper or that little news organization up in uh, North Georgia, Fetch Your News, in which he said, this will be extremely devastating to Republicans and conservatives in Georgia. Every registered voter is going to get one of these absentee ballots. This will certainly drive up turnout. Speaking about the Secretary of State sending out applications to every registered voter, and and Patricia, in many ways, you know, he was it was smart of him probably to say I shouldn't have said that, but he did say it, and it's this is a lot of what are, are the concerns are right now. The Republicans have passed a law that doesn't help expand the pool of voters; it in fact mm-hmm. reduces the potential pool of voters, which you would think is contrary to everything we ought to be striving to do. Well, you know, probably the best thing that happened to uh, Democrats this session was the unbelievable amount of controversy and media attention that it brought to this bill. People have gone through this bill with a fine-tooth comb. Um, Groups whose entire jobs it is is to turn out voters are going to start earlier. They're going to spend more money. I wouldn't be surprised if turnout did not drop as a result, but it's not as a result of what's not in this bill. There are just parts of this bill that make it harder to vote in some cases. It just does. It is kind of a pain to dig out your driver's license if you have one. If you don't, you've got a real problem. Um, And so there just simply are um, some barriers to people voting that were not there before. It simply will make it more difficult for some people to vote. Um, But at the end of the day, it's important to always remember that everything that politicians do, especially when it is as um, it becomes a partisan activity, meaning it's just Democrats and Republicans, it's about power and the maintenance of power and um, keeping the power you have as long as you can. And I think when you boil off everything else out of this bill, that's what this is about. Um, And it shouldn't really come as a surprise. It is um, something that will be litigated in the courts. Um, It may even have the unintentional consequence of driving momentum behind federal legislation to oversee what Georgia does in the future in terms of uh, any legislation changing how people vote. So we'll just have to see what comes out in the wash. But the original problem with this bill is that nobody ever produced the reams of examples of voter fraud that a bill like this is designed to take care of. Without the problem, it's very hard to get behind the solution to the problem. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you point that out. I I think that's what, in the long run, is what is most disturbing. uh, And and here's the other issue I, I think about that. Um, what the, the national media has been even harder on this law than, than, than the Georgia media, I think. Um, and, and this whole notion of Jim Crow 2.0 has become a national meme. And whether it's correct or not, it, it has really put Georgia in the spotlight in a very difficult and, and, and uh, unpleasant way, I think. And and I wonder what the consequences of that could be down the road. I mean, we talk about being the best state in the country to do business. Well, whether that's true or not, are we going to see some uh, repercussions uh, coming up down the road? We're just going to have to see. The, the, the gigantic 
um, groundswell of opposition has not produced itself. There are still NCAA tournaments still scheduled in Georgia. Those have not been pulled out. Um, we have not heard of any business deals that were in the works or inked that have been pulled back. There have been some movie productions that have been pulled back, um, specifically a movie called Emancipation, which you simply cannot film in Georgia, uh, given the political environment. Um, so we'll just have to see what the business community really does do. Um, a challenge for Republicans is that um, the most egregious parts of the bill that were proposed by the Senate and killed by the House, they just got so much oxygen. Uh, the idea of ending Sunday voting, which is very clearly targeting black voters, that did not happen. I think Republicans pay the price for it anyway. The same with the idea of entirely eliminating no excuse absentee voting. That was a red line for Speaker Ralston. He said, no way, go back to the drawing board. Uh, that's not happening. Come up with something else. We're keeping no excuse absentee voting in Georgia. So there were these internal battles among Republicans that were very public and um, led to the um, led to the the uh, perception of this bill that it is even more restrictive than it eventually became. Um, but Speaker Ralston said when we were talking before, he was reading John Boehner's book, um, who was the Speaker of the House. And John Boehner has this saying that if you're a leader without followers, you're just taking a walk. Meaning David Ralston has a caucus of some very conservative House members um, and some Republicans in swing districts who really rely on their both voters that knew they needed to pass a voting bill after everything that happened in 2020. They could not go home empty handed. Um, and so Ralston was really in a position, as was Governor Kemp, they have almost every one of their voters does not believe the election was valid. A majority of Republicans still believe it was stolen. Those are their voters. What do you do with that? Um, how do you solve that problem? Um, I think they chose to do it by passing a bill that wasn't as bad as it could have been, but we'll see. You know what? It's I, I, it's really interesting that you put John Boehner in the same sentence with David Ralston, and and here's why: it, it, based on just what you said, Boehner and then Paul Ryan after him, they had an impossible time trying to hold together the Republicans in the House because of the Freedom Caucus, first the Tea Partiers. They struggled and never were successful in finding a way to have a united Republican Party dealing with legislation during their tenures. I mean, it drove, it drove Boehner particularly crazy. He writes about it in his book. But Ralston, Ralston has managed, even with some incredibly conservative members of the Republican uh, Caucus, to hold them together. And, and he has found a balance between supporting issues that have broader appeal to more moderates uh, voters out there, as well as giving in to some of the most conservative leanings of his members. He's been much more masterful in dealing with that, I think, than, than a Boehner or a Ryan. That's such a great point. Um, he's also been more masterful at it than any other Republican in Georgia. He, he is the only person at the state Senate who has a united caucus behind him, a united group of support that he can count on and delivers for. Um, Jeff Duncan has been so unsuccessful at that. He may not run for lieutenant governor. Um, Brian Kemp has had so many challenges. He is still continuing to find that balance of how do I lead this state and get reelected and have the former president out for blood of, of uh, Brian Kemp. So David Ralston has been the most successful leader in the mm -hmm. state. And it really makes him, in my opinion, the most powerful person in the state because he uh, has that support. I think that's right. By the way, I'm not suggesting that being able to hold together his Republican caucus means that they've always put out legislation that the state agrees with. I mean, clearly they do some incredibly controversial things, but he's, as a politician, he's been masterful. Um, let's talk about what he said at the very end there. He doesn't think they're going to have a redistricting session until possibly November. That creates such turmoil for people who are looking to run 
in the 2022 cycle, I mean, they're going to have to turn, they're going to have to start working on primary campaigns before they even know when we've already got some candidates lined up before they even know what districts are going to look like. Yes, I think he he said not until the frost is on the pumpkin, which was so (laughs) great. And it tells you specifically exactly how late in the year it's going to be. And so what that means for candidates right now, planning their futures. If you are a member of the U.S. House of Representatives, a member of any state House seat, any state Senate seat, you need to know if you're, first of all, Will you have a district to run in? Are you going to run against another member of your party? There's a way to redraw these congressional districts where you can put two members of the same party who are friends right now, friends and neighbors, and suddenly they are primary opponents. Then they have to run against each other. Um, are, will you have a primary? Will you, be re, will you be drawn out of your own district? That has a huge impact on whether... Um, these members decide to run for re-election. Do they decide to run for higher office? Will they run statewide if they think they may be drawn out of their districts? Um, And even this will have an impact sooner for city council races, actually, because those districts would have been redrawn with new census boundaries. Um, But if the census, which has been delayed by COVID, when the census is delayed, the redistricting is delayed, and then the lines are delayed. And so in a normal year, the city council districts would have been redrawn in time for the next election. That's not going to happen, obviously. Um, And then it just puts, speaking of the frost on the pumpkin, it just freezes some of these races for 2022 until people know more about what they're dealing with. Uh, I got to take a quick break, uh, and we'll be back in just a minute with one of the races that's frozen. Patricia Murphy, we are really short on time, but I want to mention a couple of quick things. First of all, you've already posted your Sunday column online, and the headline of it is Why Justice for Black Men Will Be on the Ballot in 2022. And it's a, re, a, a piece in which we, uh, you, you talk about response to the Derek Chauvin uh, uh, verdict and talk about the, the repercussions that might have. Sam, could we post a link to that on our social media? Great. Okay, another item. Though, uh, Patricia, uh, it has to do with the great Herschel Walker. It, he, he is toying with this Senate race against Raphael Warnock, and it's freezing other what you would call mainstream candidate, Republican candidates, from getting in. Absolutely. Herschel Walker has been on Fox News as recently as this week, uh, was asked by Sean Hannity, will you run for Senate? He said, I don't know. Stay tuned. Um, but he's been saying that for weeks and weeks. Um, typically, you would not take that all that seriously. A former uh, beloved football star who lives in Texas, by the way, um, you wouldn't take that all that seriously, other than the fact that Donald Trump has said Herschel Walker would be fantastic and that he should run for Senate and that he would support him if he did. Um, in a Republican primary, the last thing anybody wants to do is get into a Republican primary already knowing that they're not going to have Donald Trump's support. Um, the Georgia GOP is still Donald Trump's party, and going up against him before you've even started is nothing any smart politician is going to do, other than Brian Kemp, who's already the governor. <laughs> he can't help it anyway. Yeah. Um, so it's really frozen this U.S. Senate race. There are multiple members, Republican members of the House in Washington are taking a hard look at that Senate race. They they cannot make a move until Herschel Walker makes his intentions known. You, I think you quote Buddy Carter as one of them saying, um, "I'll run if if Herschel Walker doesn't." Uh, just as one example of exactly of a of well you know, of a credible political uh, force out there, uh, not being willing to jump in the race until he hears from Herschel Walker. So that's going to be fascinating. To watch, uh, Patricia, you and I have both covered first-time candidates over the years, and as famous as Herschel, Herschel Walker is, it's not easy to start, become a first-time candidate. Now, forces like Donald Trump coming in and and holding rallies on your behalf will help that, but it didn't help Kelly Leffler, 
a first-time candidate who showed how hard it is to be a first-time candidate in the awkwardness of the way in which she ran her campaign. It's especially hard to run at the top of the ticket in a U.S. Senate seat, especially as an already famous person like Herschel Walker. He would be hounded by the press. He would be filmed 24 hours a day. There will be private investigators going through every single thing that he has done as a private citizen with kind of a less of a microscope on him. Um, it was, it is a really tough thing to do, especially having not lived in Georgia and not really knowing what's been going on in the nitty gritty of this state um, for the last few decades. Um, I want to mention one last thing, because you talk about it in the column that I just mentioned a few minutes ago. You talk about all the praise Keith Ellison, the attorney general of Minnesota, has uh, gotten and as a result of the Chauvin verdict. He, he led the whole prosecution effort, although he, he was not a presenting prosecutor. And here's why I thought it was interesting. Keith Ellison served in the U.S. House for more than a decade. He gave that up to become the attorney general of Minnesota. And, and it struck me that he is an example of how much more you can get done when you get out of the partisan stew of Washington where Congress can't do anything. And Ellison finally obviously said, I'm going to go for a job where I can really accomplish things. And the Chauvin trial is his crowning example of that. Don't you find that interesting? I completely agree. I once wrote a column that Beto O'Rourke should run for um, state Senate in Texas instead of for president because he'd get a lot more done at the local level. Exactly. <laughs> I, that, I was just really struck by uh, that uh, the other day. Uh, Patricia, by the way, before we leave, you're really warming up to your job. Give us a quick look. How you like? What do you? How do you like writing this column twice a week? How do you like getting up early and doing the jolt? Just tell our listeners what it's like to have made this transition very briefly. I I love it, especially the jolt. I would be up early in the morning reading all those newspapers and gossiping with my friends. Um, uh, any day of the week, you don't even have to pay me to do that, but don't tell the AJC. And then the column has been, um, stepping in, I will tell you, stepping into Jim Galloway's shoes is both an honor and a challenge every day because Ooh, you really tough. feel, you just feel that responsibility to live up to what he has done. And he set the bar really high and it's an honor. Uh, you've been doing a, a great job. Uh, Patricia, thank you for being with us. Again, our thanks go to Speaker David Ralston for spending uh, time with us. Also to uh, Jesse Neiswanger, Sam Burmis-Dawes, and Amelia Brock. And a special shout-out to you, Sam Burmis-Dawes. The show you produced yesterday on climate change couldn't have been better. Congratulations on a terrific effort. That's it. We're out of time. A weekend awaits. Hope you get out there. Uh, wearing your mask over your nose. Hope you take care. Stay healthy. Uh, if you haven't had your shot, now's as good a time as any to get it. We will see you again on Monday's Political Rewind. Bye, everybody.